Welcome to Indie by Design, episode 5, the show about game design and game designers. This episode features Free Jam Games, creators of Robocraft. The Indie by Design podcast is brought to you by Stace Harmon and John Robertson. This episode is hosted by me, John Robertson. Stace and I are the writers and creators of Independent by Design, Art and Stories of Indie Game Creation, a book that goes behind the scenes with some of the world's most revered indie game creators. It's available now via our website, indiebydesign.net, or via Amazon. You can also follow us on Twitter, at IndieByDesign, and if you'd like to leave us a review on iTunes or your preferred podcast platform, then we'd be very grateful. The UK-based Free Jam Games has catapulted itself to fame in recent years thanks to the success of Robocraft, a shooter in which you build your own robot and take it online to do battle with and against other creators. With player numbers in the tens of millions, and Free Jam expanding from its initial handful of creators to a studio now boasting over 40 employees, the team makes for an excellent case study regarding the continued success of the UK independent games industry. Here we talk to CEO Mark Simmons and art director Richard Turner, two of Free Jam's founders, about the origins of the company, their approach to growth over the short and the long term, the lessons learned from listening to community feedback, and much more. We begin our interview with Mark Simmons explaining the earliest origins of Robocraft. Richard Turner, for reference, is the speaker with a deeper, slightly louder voice. I was trying to um, think of ideas and produced, in some spare time, a demo, which was quite simple. It was playing around with uh, the various components of a physics engine, um, Rigid bodies, axles, springs, hinges, motors, those types of things, friction, gravity, forces. And um, had not long before that been asked to do a pitch for bringing Minecraft to another platform. This was a long time ago, it was years ago. And um, I, that was my first introduction to Minecraft, so I played Minecraft brilliant game and absolutely fell in love with it this was back in the early alpha when it was cheap and it didn't have as much functionality Mm -hmm. and um, I had a physics background so it was kind of okay blocks and physics that was kind of the early inspiration then um, playing around with the prototype we put together I started working with a prototype more closely with Rick and and together we were building the prototype up and we were finding that we were able to build quite interesting machines and fun things. So we would build. I can't, do you remember what we built back then? We were building like trebuchets and. Yeah, yeah. It, it was very much like besieged in a sense, wasn't it? It, had it, that, it was kind of a. a it was like a futuristic cuba. besieged. Back yeah, then, yeah. Wasn't it? yeah. And and so we would we would you, at that point you could sort of build, build together as well. Trebuchets. And I built a um, fully articulated walking dock. Yeah. With with just like hinges and mechanisms and things like that, it was really incredible. It, it was quite it was complicated good, back then. So we had um, the, the way you would get something to move. You you had. A block which was a battery, and it looked a little bit like a battery, and you had other blocks which were wire blocks, and you had a block which was like a button block, and then so you had your battery supplying power through the wire blocks, through the button block to a motor, and then you would put something like a wheel on the end of a motor, and then on that button when you added it, you could you could assign a key to it, so you could say assign the B key to the which would drive the wheel. 
for example, right? And say you wanted the wheel to go forwards or backwards, instead of a button, you would put a switch there and you could make it go in bi-directional. And, uh, and then we just added more and more little blocks, didn't we? We had like springs, servos, yeah, spoilers, little aerofoils, little yeah, rockets. And so the, cool stuff. The, 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 the breadth of what you could create was incredible. It was, it, it was totally besieged before besieged, you know, in, in many ways. But, but where, say, perhaps besieged solved a, solved a problem we had at the time, which was, okay, we have this amazing building system and you can virtually build anything that's fun physics. But it had two fundamental problems. One was, okay, what do you do with these machines? What's your motive? And the other problem was... Um, complexity because you had to you had to be a small genius to get anything yeah. really clever out of it. I, we, I think we really enjoyed it so much because we both have that engineering background yeah and for, for us it was like a childhood dream but actually it wasn't as mass market as we were hoping it yeah. to be to be and to be to be fair besieged have solved a lot of the problems that we also faced we did a load of focus tests didn't we with yeah. kids and they were just couldn't yeah they're couldn't overwhelmed by it and we, kept, we were adding tutorials and and uh, we made it a puzzle game, and still every focus test the kids simply struggled with creating them. Yeah. And so, in the end, we took quite a big pivot, and we decided to go, okay, let's make it a PvP game where you build something and you fight other people's things, and that was the purpose. And the other big epiphany we had was kind of this whole, let's just simplify it. Let's get rid of the batteries, the wires, the switches. Ultimately, that meant losing freedom. And we intentionally did that in exchange for usability. So the big change, for example, was the wheel. You just stuck a wheel on a block. It automatically steered left and right the right way, assigned itself to the controls, and it just worked. So if you put two wheels at the front, two wheels at the back, the front wheels steered, the back wheels didn't. And if you stuck two more wheels on, so there were now six wheels, three on each side, the front two steered left and right, the back two steered right and left, and it still worked. Mm. So this kind of mantra at that point was, you should just stick it on and it should just work, yeah. was the whole Accessible thing. Accessible to all, basically. Yeah. Well, it was, um, when it was in its much more complex form, were there other people aside from you guys that were enjoying it? Or oh, was yeah. it just for you? But they were all like old guys like us. <laughs> and hey. uh, they were they were like kind of, um, you know, reliving their kind of science project yeah. youth yeah. through this little uh, um, thing. And it was very much like a science project, wasn't it? Was, it? Yeah. it was, like, and there's other games that have explored that space since. Well, Scrap Mechanic is a Kerbal great, Space Program yeah. is another yeah. one. Uh, so there's space engineers are doing it a different way, yeah. and and so we were kind of in that sphere. But these were before these games existed. I mean, there, Roblox was around. That was one we looked at, um, and there was, an, well, there was a few others that have just disappeared since. Yeah, there was one with Cubots. No, there was one with Robots. It's yeah, robots. Raw bots was yeah. one. Yeah, that and, was they, quite, and they had a fantastic quite, they demo. They had a really complex physics system yeah. that you could even script the parts. And actually, they, we, we used them as a way of, of uh, illustrating to us that the direction we were going in wasn't going to work. They actually they went under at some point or other. And just well, we only found out about those games after we were quite far down the line with our little science project because yeah. we thought we had this unique thing that was yeah. totally ours and nobody mm. had anything like it. And then we started to discover these things were a little bit like what we had. Yeah. <coughs> but we still believe what we had had enough unique elements. 
And then the big breakthrough was the whole usability and PvP thing, wasn't it? Yeah, just making it accessible to all. Suddenly it was now a much more appealing game to everyone. And then, of course, we we were all playing the World of Tanks at the time as well. So we we sort of combined that, being able to build any construction you want and then going into battle in similar style to World of Tanks. There was some business logic applied as well, not in a kind of boring business way, but we kind of said, okay, there's there's only a couple of us interested in there was me and Rick and a, f- a few other guys and we were like interested in doing something new and on our own and we were trying to look for an opportunity where we could do that and um, for us uh, we, we, we had to we wanted to make a game that could be much bigger than just us and that led us down the road of kind of exploring user generated content because that's where users can make the game bigger than you, you know, and that was one of the mantras we had. Um, that partly led us as w- where we were going PvP as well. That partly led us down the road of a free-to-play project, where that was an easier way to potentially make the game played by a larger audience. And also, in the case of us wanting to be multiplayer and indie, um, we, we wanted to. Um, uh, be free to play in that respect as well where it would be more likely we'd get enough players to actually play our game to yeah. actually uh, fight together online so, yeah. so there's a few kind of little things when we the World of Tanks thing we were all playing World of Tanks and mm. we enjoyed playing the game and, but it was there was partly a strategic decision there we felt okay we've got this fairly unique complex game mechanic where you have to build your own tank or vehicle or, or robot um, and take it online and that is something players will have to learn and so we want them not to have to learn the core gameplay that you do with your creation once you've made it and World of Tanks was quite popular at the time and, and there were two facets to it it was quite popular yeah. and it was really simple to reproduce yeah. for us it was yeah, two things a simple capture point and a map and we could make that quickly and um, and then then we ended up on a stuck on a road with them really didn't we because it kind of yeah, worked and then yeah. we added tiers and lots yeah. of other I think world we followed of tanksy too, type too, mechanics yeah, didn't we too closely at the end of the day yeah, actually maybe that that has hurt us at some point but it it, was, you know we, we've moved away from that a long time ago now yeah. but what was interesting in those those early days is when we first released it and, and of course we were trying to generate a huge number of players and uh, just wasn't happening initially was it and at, at lunchtime we would have to jump on the game we'd play it ourselves just to make sure there were enough players turning over so not great use of our time really but you know at least at least we were adding content to the game ourselves at that early stage then one night we had a few players we talked to regularly we didn't know them by name but we knew them by username we chatted uh, to them Spill online Chemicals. and Mad Attack and, yeah. and, 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 and Greybeard yeah and these these players were like they'd been with us since the very first rubbishy demo, and they they, they followed us the whole time. Yeah, and uh, we would be playing online because we play ourselves to try and bump the numbers up. We would be seeing them online yeah. constantly, and then all of a sudden, um, this Polish YouTuber did a video of the game, and by YouTube standards, he wasn't like an insanely large YouTuber. He had like fifty thousand subscribers, I think. And, uh, but because we had literally hardly anybody playing the game, the delta between hardly anybody and all the people that suddenly came, yeah. we had literally 2,000 people online all at the same time. And we, yeah. and we, we were wondering... We, we crashed initially as well. Well, we thought there was a bug 
in our reporting. So right. There can't be 2,000 people online. That must be wrong. <laughs> so it all started spiralling. Yeah, and then all point. the servers were dying and the website was dying. <clears> and then, So we, we just about scrambled together to fix all of that. And then uh, a Russian YouTuber covered us and he had yeah. 350,000 subscribers. Yeah. And then a Japanese YouTuber covered us and he had 900,000 subscribers. And between the three of them, the game was now full of Russians, Polish, and yeah. Japanese. Yeah. <laughs> and we had a chat, and it only had one language in it. You couldn't, like, go to the Russian chat channel. So all these people were talking to the same channel. Yeah. It was quite a mess. Well, having those uh, those YouTubers and, and, and early followers was really good because they stuck with us for a long period of time. And we would use them for feedback, wouldn't we? We would, yeah. we would sort of uh, quiz them after every update that we did and, and try and try and improve the game. So we had quite a good rapport going with, with a lot yeah. of them. Uh, I remember Spool Chemicals was an old war vet, wasn't he? I think he had a disability and was sort of yeah. playing at home in, in America. He said, I can't go out, so I just play. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it, he, he was so... He did, maybe he doesn't even realise it, but he was so important to our early yeah. days of development. Um, so, yeah. We, we did our first online... Him. We had an early mantra which we ended up being forced to change, but it was like we don't want to put any limits on what they've created. If they want to put like a million guns on, let, let them do it. If they want to build whatever, let them do it. But let's kind of build some kind of pros and cons into it all, right? And um, and the only limit we had was time. So if you kept playing the game, you'd get some more in-game currency, and then you go buy some more parts. And uh, this guy, the, the war vet, he was playing it so much, he'd basically built this robot that was so large and had so many guns on it. And at the time, every time you added an extra gun, it increased the fire rate of your robot. He had so many guns on it, he was doing like 200 shots per frame. Yeah, yeah. And the server, anybody who went on to that server and saw him... You'd suddenly were reduced to like one frame a second because he was firing at you. <laughs> yeah. You couldn't play. He had a ninja PC and everyone was yeah. getting obliterated. I think he threw like a hundred lights on his robot as well. So yeah. everyone else was just blinded with a low yeah. frame rate. And you just go around plundering yeah. them. So then we added the CPU, uh, yeah. the concept of CPU, and you had a limit as to how much you built your robot. And every part had a cost yeah. of CPU. And that was how it so once it gets to that point and more and more and more people playing and experimenting in that way, does it become, how much of your time then became about kind of managing and limiting in a, in a positive you know, gameplay sense what people were doing and how much was that um, subsequently was assigned to coming up with your own new concepts to the game? Did the player base and your reaction to what they were doing Kind of, I think, or help I or think at that point it was pre having a kind of World of Tanks esque experience. So we quickly moved at that point to try and putting some rules, some rules, yeah. yeah, to the game, which was to create a level playing field so that it was that there was an actual game there. So and we that was when we kind of decided, okay, perhaps we should pick a game in this game in case it ended up being World of Tanks. And it wasn't like, let's copy World of Tanks. It was more that you had... World of Tanks was a well-structured, simple game, core game idea. They had tanks, we had robots. Yeah. And we knew we could reproduce that quickly and we had to do something quite quickly. Yeah. So that's what we set our minds on. So probably the next phase was to start to put some rules in that made that work, wasn't it? Yeah, um, bizarrely, that some of those rules we undid 
you know, yeah. towards the latter end. But it's worth probably talking about the uh, the lean approach to yeah. to our development as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the, we the, we both read a book called The Lean Startup, which is a Silicon Valley, um, you know, tech company startup thing. Yeah. Uh, and it was largely focused around a few case studies uh, where people have done like websites and technical products that, and the basic mantra was um, build, measure, learn. So it was kind of come up with a theory of what you think is appealing um, to an audience that might buy it, you know, because ultimately you're trying to make a business that can work. A product mark and and you the, the, they call it product market fit where you have a product and it fits the market and when that happens magic happens and a company can work and and um, we obviously had the early semblances of a, as a, of a product and the idea was to try and form it into a product and find a market for it and get them fit and what we were trying to do is go in this little loop of okay you know we have a hypothesis for a market that will like this type of activity let's test that in the minimum possible way let's build it let's launch it let's measure the result let's learn from it and then let's um, form new hypotheses and we did that and, and try and make that loop as fast as we can and that, I mean we still have that ethos and that is the ethos even now yeah. um, that's hurt us sometimes though isn't it and we, so sometimes we're kind of okay statistically speaking according to the analytics this feature is not working people aren't playing it it's not popular enough Therefore, we should change it in a significant way because we can see in numbers it's not working. Yeah. And then you change it. And obviously, the community that like that feature so passionate and vocal. Yeah. And it's hard to kind of anticipate and measure the, the backlash and the reaction and how that impacts. So sometimes you've got a feature that actually isn't widely used or that popular. But now we're... A, slightly more conservative about um, changing it completely in ways we did do earlier on just because we learned along the way there's some stuff in our game that's a bit sticky and if we change it the community uh, ultimately hates us for it. Well, so that brings us on to Steam really isn't it? So yeah. when, when we then we got greenlit in three days we got greenlit? It was a million. It was yeah we, real we decided fast. to go on greenlight. Yeah. It was five days to to be greenlit and then right. we just go, went for launch as quick as we could didn't we yeah and, and uh, that so that was an interesting scenario so literally overnight we just spiralled out of control in terms of how many users we had there was a million 1.1 <laughs> million installs in the first month yeah yeah so we we, you know, we, we just took off and I, I think that what you were saying about um, people then reacting to when you change the game because we because we released the gates you know, potentially quite early, but we, you know, we did it to to keep ourselves alive and to to help develop the, further, the game further. But of course, then you're you're still changing the game quite a lot. In fact, we've only just you know come out of alpha, uh, so we've modified the game an awful lot during that last last three four years. Yeah. And so when you're when the goalposts change on the players, some some people react well, some people don't. You know, at the end of the day, but. Uh, Steam was the whole start of that, and it just went. It just took off. It's only a much bigger audience as well. So yeah. change, change, for the sake of trying to do an, a lean experiment to see if we can sort of um, ultimately improve uh, things like retention, um, sometimes monetization, um, you know, more regular engagement, people yeah. playing for longer session lengths, all that kind of stuff. 
you're looking kind of dryly at the numbers you're trying to combine that with feedback on the forums and in the social spaces that we interact with through community management and those types of things and then we we decide okay we're going to make a change and then it can upset the audience we've done that few times really, really upset the audience yeah, but we've been brave enough to carry through brave, them, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah. well yeah that was one of the things I was going to bring up was, does it become now you've got so many players like over 10 million players does it does it become more difficult to innovate because people have expectations they've got things that they love and, and any sort of tweak is going to you know yeah, we're always in meetings having this conversation. No, it's, it's definitely no, but it, it, that is absolutely the case. Yeah. It, it is more difficult to innovate because uh, your consideration is two things: the innovation, and then what impact it will have to the sentiment within the audience. Whereas when in the earlier days, that latter part wasn't a thought; it was yeah. just let's innovate, let's find a market. Whereas now it isn't that, is it? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's very much we we talk about both sides. I still think we innovate more than the average. Oh yeah, game. I think we're pretty brave. Yeah, yeah. Because like we, we completely changed the economy to yeah. the crate system. Um, yeah, and the last recently, update, was last update the beta update, we radically changed our core game mode, which was the most popular game mode, and we can like it's still very representative of the original. In our view, it's much better. Yeah. But um, it was a big change. Like it went from eight versus eight to five versus five, um, and and it went from um, capturing towers by destroying them with your weapons to capturing the towers by driving onto a simple point and capturing it. You know, over time, and they're quite they're quite fundamental. And they're the kinds of changes that. The audience can easily get very upset about, particularly with the most popular game mode. But they've been, on the whole, they've really liked the new game mode, haven't we? Yeah, it's been really positive. So. Do um, I don't mean to to do the audience of games in general any disservice, but do you find do you think audiences always really know what they want? Like they might know, they might have lots of feature ideas but do they really understand whether that's going to make the game better or not obviously some it's, do. it's not it's not necessarily it's not about what they say it's about interpreting what they're saying right it's like the audience there's loads of layers to it as well yeah. isn't there? there's always a few people in your community who are like that you could easily hire them as a designer they've yeah, got such true. insight and they're, they're really good they're really articulate they're they understand your game much more than, say, a designer in another company was, because they actually play it every day. But they've also got clearly got a very strong designer head on them. Then there's kind of the community sentiment as a whole, because you know the community is a bit like a wave, isn't it? You know, the wave will start or an avalanche, say, where you know one person will start. A feeling and that can trigger other people to follow that feeling and that definitely happens in all communities and you see it in all social networks online then there's so our job the, the hard part is to try and pick through it uh, to the things that actually get to the crux of what's frustrating them yeah. you know so we'll go okay they're all complaining about this Okay, we recently changed the game mode names. Actually, this is a point of discussion internally at FreeGen, but the game modes were called Team Deathmatch and Battle Arena. And when we moved to beta, 
we changed the names of the game modes to basic mode and normal mode. So basic mode and normal mode are clearly much drier and less exciting than team deathmatch and battle arena. Um, but the basic logic there was that we looked at games, say, like Overwatch and Heroes of the Storm and, say, League of Legends and say, okay, their game modes aren't sexed up. They're not like, this is the Tower of Doom mode. You know, they are like... Um, they're trying to tell you something about the progression through the game. Or, so they call it quick play and unranked and ranked. And they have this concept that, look, this is the game. This game is sort of almost one mode. And there's a few variants of this mode. So there's Brawl, which is our fun, silly variant of mode. There's Custom Games, which is our kind of, you create your own way of playing the cool mode. And there's Quick Play, which is like the quick way to play the mode and all of that. And so... That's quite informative in a way. So a new user comes to the game, kind of can judge somewhat that the experience is going to be similar, but they're kind of nuanced differences. And that's true of Robocraft as well. So we kind of wanted to demonstrate to a new player that this there's a kind of progression there. What you want to do is first build or choose a robot you like, then test it out so you learn how to drive it, then play AI bots so you can practice against the AI. And when you feel comfortable, go to a mode which is quite easy to play. In our case, we call it. So, so we kind of want... And then when you're ready, go to the, the, the proper full Robocraft, right? So the basic idea was we kind of have them in a row. There's AI bots, then there's basic mode, then there's normal mode. And we're trying to say to the player, go through that journey. We want you to finish at normal mode. But obviously the, the sentiment in the community is, oh my God. Team Deathmatch is a much better name than Basic Mode. Why have you done that? <laughs> yeah. and, and actually, it's forced us to question it ourselves. Has, yeah. like, Should we change the name? Well, we think again? some of the reason some of the other developers do it, and some you know the big big names, is mainly because of localization and just it's just logic. You know, it, the the words translate well in, in different languages, but also gives you, as Mark said, gives you some understanding of where you're supposed to start and end. Yeah. So it's it's just an example of a silly little thing that we have to deliberate. Well, we've had quite a lot. We've had many fun. meetings about this single topic. Yeah, we keep coming up, and the conversation goes on yeah. too long until the point where yeah. we well, let's stop talking that. about it. Now we talked about the names <laughs> enough. You know, yeah. Yeah. So I guess I guess what I guess what it is is it's a it's a question of pragmatism versus idealism, right? I yeah. So you're. Do you make it easy so everyone can understand? It doesn't matter. They might have only played one multiplayer game before, but they know the modes here. They yeah. Don't need to Wikipedia it or whatever. Um, but I guess, in a way, from what you were saying before about that first of the robot building mechanics were super complicated. You do whatever you want. <clears throat> now they're more um, intuitive and easily understood. Um, which I suppose is a is a pragmatic decision as well. But in 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 terms of that, do you have a kind of internal hard and fast um, set of limits that you don't want to go beyond in the building? So you don't want to allow players to be able to do X thing because it's going to make just the basic building like way too complicated for new players to understand. The, the problem with the... It's not that we don't want to allow complexity to be there because there's definitely a part of the audience that wants freedom and, and the ability to engineer in a more complicated way. Like currently, when you put um, 
jet thrusters on your robot and they're facing forwards, mm-hmm. that automatically signs itself to the forward button because we assume that if you point them forwards, you push forward button, the jet thrusters will fire and make the robot go forwards. Mm-hmm. And then if you want thrusters that go forwards and backwards, you put some more thrusters pointing the other way and they'll assign themselves to the back button and mm-hmm. left and right and up and down and all that at the same time. And people build kind of these flying drones with jets pointing in all directions and they can... And, and they fly around quite well. But what the players have always asked for is, what if I want to assign a jet to a specific button of my choosing? Um, and w- there's no real reason why we wouldn't want to allow them to do that, because if they want to tinker and do clever things like that, and, and that will engage them in the game for longer, then why wouldn't we do it? The problem for us comes that where if that were to allow that player to create a robot that was, say, um, better than the other robots then what you're kind of doing is saying okay unless you learn how to do that you will not be able to be competitive in the multiplayer game mode and what you're really doing is making the wall of being able to enjoy and get engaged in Robocraft even higher so um, we're currently looking at we're currently working really hard on custom games so all of the player base can um, create custom games with their friends, set the rules, change, choose map, configure the game, invite exactly who they want to play with in the battle. And that becomes a space where we could allow them to do things that aren't allowed in the general multiplayer game. So actually what's good about the custom games that we're doing now is it potentially allows a bit of freedom for us to do some stuff. Like one of the things we had to get rid of at one, we had this mega box game game aspect where you could build a robot that was like 10 times the size of a standard robot and the basic game mode allowed one of those into battle and all the rest of the robots had to be smaller well the issue it caused is like there's a number of issues everyone wanted to be the big robot issue one Um, when you were in battle with the big robot the whole gameplay focused around the two big robots like once the enemy big robot was dead your team was going to win or vice versa so then everybody just followed around the big robots trying to heal them trying to destroy the other one and it kind of wasn't as good um, fundamentally but there are big fundament. there's big parts of the audience that still go I want Megabots back you you must hate us because you got rid of Megabots and (laughs) obviously again that was a pragmatic decision that it had a hard negative it. community yeah. sentiment but maybe custom games allow us to bring yeah. those kind of features back within the custom games so you yeah. can have yeah. that fun yeah. but not affect the main yeah. game mode If you're interested in game design and game designers then do make sure you check out Independent by Design Art and Stories of Indie Game Creation it's a hardback book that combines inside stories that focus on specific studios and individuals, all of which are informed by tens of hours of original interviews with compelling pages of original artwork and concept documents. 26 studios and individuals are featured in the book, including Introversion Software, Vlam Beer, Frictional Games, Devolver Digital and The Chinese Room. Just go to IndieByDesign.net to get your copy today. You can follow us on Twitter at IndieByDesign.net and follow us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash independent by design. Our website, as well as being a portal through which to listen to our podcast or check out our book, is also full of interesting editorial content for you to read. Again, that's indiebydesign.net. 
The second half of our chat with FreeJam begins with Mark and Richard talking about the importance of not segmenting your multiplayer audience and how to go about making sure that that doesn't happen. We've made some huge sweeping changes to the game in order to, for that reason, to yeah. improve um, liquidity of the matches. Well, we call it liquidity. The, the theory being that you have kind of a, a fixed bucket of water, which is the players who are mm. online at the time, right? And uh, in, in, if you want to prioritise matchmaking fairly, uh, what you want to, you, to do really is have an ELO system which matchmakes players by skill. And you want to have everybody playing just one mode because that allows you to perfectly match make players by skill. And then the more game mechanics you add that subdivide that audience, the worse the matchmaking gets. Um, so say if we add five game mode options, that means you're taking that bucket and splitting it into five buckets. And so you've got less water in each bucket to match make. And then if you add, if you need a decent ping time to the servers, you need to geolocate the servers, you need to have servers in Asia, servers in America, servers in Europe, and that now subdivides them by three, so that's five modes times three locations, so you're subdividing the audience by 15. Then you add um, stuff like tiers, we used to have tiers, World of Tanks, that's subdividing by 10 and more, so now it's like, you know, 150 subdivisions, mm. which we actually removed for that reason, to get 10 tiers to one, we added a game mode that allowed all robots, small and large, to, to feature in the same battle and have advantage pros and cons, which eventually allowed us to match make better. If you have a lot of players per team, eight versus eight in the previous main game mode's case, it's harder to match make because you need 16 people of equal skill. Now we have five versus five, so the matchmaking is improved. And you can see it in game because now not so much at the very high level, but when you're in the low level, you see two teams match made. The matchmaking score between the two sometimes is exactly the same. Sometimes it's off by a point out of thousands. So, um, so every time now we talk about further subdivision of the audience, we know that it will, and we've seen it, it will impact the matchmaking in a negative way because you're subdividing the audience. So we're doing it very carefully. But we had a vision for quite a while now that we would end up with five game modes. AI, so you could learn the game. A more casual mode where you weren't being ranked, so you could play that for fun. A ranked mode for those players who wanted to see if they were good at the game, take it more seriously. And then a brawl mode, which allowed us to define the rules but have fun things happening as events every few weeks and then finally a custom mode which allowed people who wanted to create robot chickens and dinosaurs and have them fight together and those things will not play well in an online battle but people like to make them they can do that these people who want to make a tournament themselves and decide record on a piece of paper who the winner is and eventually give a prize or something like that they can do that and people who wanted to create like silly streams, like we had one YouTube video which was like a Monty Python sketch done with a robot. So they can do that. And, they, and the giant foot, wasn't it, as well? So yeah. they did all the knights and the giant but foot. It, I mean, inevitably it will create further subdivisions, so that will hurt our matchmaking. But we have reduced game mode options quite a bit recently. We feel like we, we're in a position to be able to add this, which will provide maximum variety 
for um, as a final set of subdivision we're willing to do so yeah, yeah. and I mean you've um, touched on that world of tanks and, and looking at what they've done and you've obviously gone through a lot of trial and error to, to get to where you are now but have you um, along the way have you consulted directly with other people or have your own histories before free jam given you direct experience in, in, the, in the mass multiplayer space already? No, we've learned from scratch, haven't we? we, we learned the hard way. Yeah, definitely. But I think with the, with the lean approach... We're all um, gamers, obviously. We're yeah. all gamers that play loads of multiplayer PvP games. That's the, one of the main things. We all play different ones, but we all play them a lot. Yeah, so you bring everyone brings something unique to the table. Me and Rick have been discussion. in game development for like nearly 20 years each now. And uh, we've we've made so many different games that obviously there's some commonality in making a game and the approach, but but, and, but there's all, always different challenges. We haven't had the benefit of being able to go kind of go up to the guy who makes Legion, League of Legends and say, "Hey, how do we get this to work?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've had a few chats at various in, um, conferences, like game conferences. You you speak to guys and you share you know some notes on how to do things that have helped along the way but no we never really sat down with anybody who kind of mm. could point out that like the the whole subdivision equals bad matchmaking was a rec fairly recent kind of epiphany where yeah, we sat down in a room we said look we've got to go one way or the other we can either offer broadness as in variety of things to do with your robot from racing to Backling to puzzles, to you know, or we have to try and deliver what the audience were asking for, which was they kept just constantly moaning about moaning is the wrong word. <laughs> they kept, but, but they were constantly saying that, that the matchmaking is terrible, your matchmaking yeah. is awful, yeah. and they were pointing it out a lot, yeah. and we just felt really bad about it. So, and the matchmaking was, was bad for multiple reasons. Loads of reasons. It's what you're going back to a previous question that you asked about, you know, how we diagnose what, mm. what the community is saying about our game. Uh, and this is, this is a, a multi phased problem. But the bad matchmaking is not just because the algorithm isn't working correctly, it's because of how the robots are constructed and because there's megabots in the game. And you know, it's a re it was a real massive thing um, to, to sort of uh, dissect uh, and then reform into a new solution. I and mean, we think we've got well, now basically, you can't the best have solution, both. You can't have broad yeah. variety and good matchmaking. Yeah. And we had to make a decision which road should we go down because we, we were basically doing both badly. We didn't have yeah. broad variety and we didn't have. Good matchmaking, <laughs> but so, um, we've we've been playing the game a lot recently, our, our own game. Yeah, and um, I, I've been matchmaking with with in, with Mark and the platoon with with our designer Sergey as well. And those guys have been using fairly reasonably good sized robots. And I've been using a starter bot. Obviously, I'm more experienced in in, in the game than your average player. But I've I've been we've been interested to see how we've developed as a party, having such big disparity between the robot sizes. Uh, and actually, you know, I, I've been hitting. You know, top scores in some of those matches that we've been playing. Well, we so that's a testimony to to how well we've yeah. balanced yeah. The, the the small tiered guns or, or yeah. movement types to the high tier ones. Yeah. So I'm still competitive. I'm competitive probably because I play the game so much. But 
you know, that's a testimony. I think it's yeah. real success. Yeah, that's quite um, interesting. Do you find that people do kind of specialise in role? You know, like something like Overwatch, you have very specific. Yeah. yeah. Do you find people build yeah. and then Absolutely. team up? Well, particularly when they um, play as a party of five at the top level, they do that a lot. They, they, they really do specialise. We call them metabots, don't they? Yeah. Because they, 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 they construct things that are particular to their play style, but also that works to the I don't know, benefit of the gameplay mechanics that are currently in, in play. Yeah. And so when we change the gameplay mechanics, they, the metabot changes. Um, but then, obviously, if you, if you want to fly, then your, your metabot will be different from a from a ground based metabot. But uh, the, yeah, they, they specialize so heavily. There's something called triforcing in our game, which is a a, a really clever technique where they uh, overlap um, uh, triangular shaped cubes in order to dissipate damage across their robot. And we didn't even we conceive put, of it when we first like released it. We but. put quite a lot of conscious effort into game mechanics that force a level of specialization. Mm-hmm. Um, the simple one is that we have um, this power bar and that's kind of your ammo how much you can fire your weapons and um, the more things you put on your robot the less power you get so if you want to be a jack of all trades you've got all of the weapons on your robot you get less power so you fundamentally you can't fire any of them whereas if you just choose say a primary and a secondary then you have a lot more power power available, so you can you can be much more um, strong in that role. So then it becomes a case of if you sit with other party members, you can be more complementary to each other and be stronger as a pair than you are by all being jack of all trades. And that's been quite intentional. There's a few other mechanics in the game that also deliver the same thing. For example. Um, some of the weapons, if you have just one of them on your robot, it will fire at quite a slow fire rate. And then if you put multiple of them on, say five, it will fire at a maximum fire rate. And of course you want the maximum fire rate to deliver that that specific role best. But once you put five on your robot, you, you struggle to fit five of all the weapon types on your robot, for example. And so then you're forced to specialise just in the way you structure the robot as well. So there's a few game mechanics we put in there intentionally to kind of encourage that kind of specialisation. It used to happen anyway, but it happens more now because of those mechanics. Yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking when you're saying this stuff, like in comparison to what you were saying before, that our early prototype was a building a robot game and it was mega complicated. Like, are you surprised that it's come this far like I don't mean surprised in your own ability to make no, it happen, but yeah but totally surprised absolutely yeah I mean there's just how, how long were we, we just five guys oh well we went all the way to was, launch it on Steam pretty right. much yeah, yeah. And, then, and then maybe we yeah. made our first high then we were like point, but... we, we need more people yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so we're, yeah, just from five and now the office is well nearly, nearly 35 feet nearly, yeah. nearly, nearly 40 people now so yeah, we we are overwhelmed and surprised yeah. by by the success. Well, it also, it's, it's fourth birthday, isn't it? Our fourth yeah. birthday, and and we didn't, we never thought we would be going yeah. for four years. Yeah, it's incredible, and still doing, you know, still doing really well. And yeah. I think the game now is is a much stronger version of Robocraft than when we launched. Yeah. If only we'd had that game when we launched, we'd we'd probably be, uh, you know. It's getting exciting for us now because we we really want to as a company focus on user-generated content games. We see Robocraft as our first attempt 
and al- although it's done quite well and we're really happy with it we we've built in the meantime so many little prototypes and ideas for different yeah. ways to do user generated content and with the success of Robocraft we've we've got we've got enough resources now with people um, some money in the bank some um, some good relationships like with Valve and other companies and partners and and we've got users that play our games and mailing lists and stuff. We think we're in a strong position now to start exploring some of those other UGC things we've got prototypes. So mm. we've just begun developing some prototypes and some of those into things. Um, but also like, um, you know, where we focused obviously on the the team arena pvp side where we could have gone broader with variety things you could do with robots we've obviously let in in that process gained some players and let, left some behind that want to play more variety but we've got loads of ideas for ways to like appeal to that audience too haven't we like the the side that wants amazing broad variety and ugc i think we've learned so much about ugc games along the road that it's getting really exciting for us now where we've grown to the point where maybe we can push on and yeah and both really so push, push Robocraft through the full release and, and 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 that but as well as we would love to at some point take Robocraft to console we'd love to take it to China that would be awesome so there'd be things we'd look into but equally we'd we'd love to push Robocraft in other directions and possibly with tangential products that were like Robocraft or mm. but were but appealed to the other side of the audience that maybe we left behind and also completely new ways of doing UGC that just haven't been done before yeah. because some of our ideas and prototypes exist in that ballpark. Yeah. Why why is it what is it about user generated content that interests you um, just at at a foundational level because it's very different to making a different kind of game that's designed to be explicitly experienced in X way here you're you know you're almost the architect it's an emotional thing it's like any game developer makes a game and then players play it and enjoy it at that level what we used to me and Rick we used to make games and they were work for hire games weren't they Mm -hmm. we would get paid a budget to make a game it was somebody else's intellectual property we would be told to make it on a horrendously tight horrible budget where you could never make a decent game in that budget and we knew it but we needed that contract to stay alive mostly fairly linear products as well yeah, weren't yeah. we'd have to design the whole game yeah. in a document at the start there was no interaction with community or anything yeah, like yeah. that to iterate it to get a game they actually liked yeah we would develop it for two and a half years. During that time, we'd get our asses kicked through milestones being laid, <laughs> the publishers saying the quality wasn't right, yeah. they'd reduce the budget or something really random halfway to prove the project, say, look, we cut you by a million dollars, and all this stuff. See, in the end, you launch a product, it would get six out of ten on Metacritic, yeah. absolutely soul-destroying. They wouldn't give you another game. So yeah. that's the, the, the worst side of the games industry. Then the next tier up from that is you make a game, you launch it, it's your game and the players like it and they enjoy it and buy it and that's incredibly nice feeling. 
But I think UGC has a layer on top of that. It's like people take the game away in ways that you didn't anticipate. And it's really emotionally makes you happy. When you see people do that Monty Python video and the things that they do in Robocraft, it really, to me, it's the best type of game development. It's so so rewarding too because the the community is, is with you the entire journey. They still are. And, uh, you know, in the last couple of days, uh, in relation to the last release that we've done for Vita, I've had lots of people come up to me on Twitter and just go, wow, you, you guys have done a great job on this pass and, and on this update. And, and we're super excited about what you're doing next. And, you know, kudos to your team and all this sort of stuff. And, and it's, you know, in, it's happened the whole way through. And it's and really they the, motivating. They made a fan site called Robocraft Garage. And people yeah. were just uploading their robots and photos. Like a whole social network just for yeah. robots. Yeah. And Jack, when we see stuff like that happen, that that is just that's different to making even your own game and it doing quite well and getting good reviews and stuff. It's just a whole level upwards from there. Yeah. So I think that's why. Yeah. Was it scary though? Like taking applying that to the lean startup philosophy, like um, was it scary? You've almost got less of a. Um, a safety net, like you don't have a safety net anyway if you're working on an independent game, not necessarily, I don't know how you guys were funded, but if it doesn't work, no one creates content for it, then what do you yeah. do after that? Like, well, we, we, the weird thing is I don't think you can just create, I think what we learned with that early science project prototype is you can't just create, say, a platform of gadgets that you could possibly make users generate content out of and then people will. I think you have to seed it with some gameplay. Um, maybe take Minecraft as an example, but Minecraft was fundamentally a good little survival game which was kind of beautiful and had an atmosphere about it and, and a cute kind of indie vibe about it. It was just a joy to play anyway. Then beyond that, people took it and they had a creative mode and people started building you know, all the crazy stuff they built. Then the modders took it. And they started making mods for it, and people started making, say, texture sets and skins for it. And and it was seeded fundamentally with a good game in the first place. And I believe, and we've discussed it a lot, is this is the way to do it. You've got to start there. You need to have a game that people can play, uh, but it needs to have the ability to go way beyond the game. You've got to build both of those facets in at the start. For more on games and game creators, visit IndieByDesign.net and follow us on Twitter at IndieByDesign. The Indie by Design podcast is released every Wednesday and is brought to you by the writers and creators of Independent by Design, art and stories of indie game creation. Our next episode features Dean Hall, creator of Daisy and founder of Rocketworks. Music for this episode is kindly provided by Ben Pranzi.